0: Okay. Good morning brother Paul, good morning sister Maggie. hey, yeah, sure. Okay, go. Yes. You may talk about the king of Gideon, you may talk about the king of Saul. There is no like good old jolly way on the battle of Jericho. I'm the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Just the battle of Jericho and the ghosts came tumbling down. Just with bottom of Jerry Ho, Jerry Ho, Jerry How Josh Bart of Jerry Ho and the walls came tumbling down. Then the lumber and false begin to blow and the trumpets begin to sound. Joseph walked on, on the child who song and the walls came tumbling down. Just with bottom, Jerry How Jerry How Jerry Goff with Bart of Jerry Hall, and the walls came tumbling down. Up to the watch of Jerry Cong, him has the spinning hand. Go flow down on Joseph, I thought about placing my hand. I thought it was a bad love. Jerry go! Jerry go! Jerry go! Jerry go! Jerry go. And the world came tumbling down. Thank you. Yeah! Yeah! you, the,
1: you the, the Beatles, Beatles weren't very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good
0: morning. Hello. Yeah, no. 9, 8, 7, do two, two, <laughs> Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And it's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to it. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got like my quota of tunes for the next 10 years or album. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> <laughs> the winter of, winter discontent, of with discontent with the Beatles. Beatles.
1: Hello and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick, join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode twenty-one. Welcome back to January 6th, 1969. In the last episode, after the usual preamble about what the Beatles may have been watching or reading about at the weekend, we just dipped our toe in the water of the early morning audio track. Before we revisit the story so far, I've got another podcast recommendation. Pods Like Us Martin Marv Quibell talks with podcasters and podcast fans. If like me, you're always looking for new stuff to listen to, this is, as one reviewer puts it, the best podcast about podcasts. And Marv is very supportive of this podcast, so please check him out. Our episodes 1 to 19 tell the story of the first two days rehearsal. Feel free to binge your way through these. For those who just want to recap, here is a summary of episode 20. The tape starts with some audio slates, which regular listeners will recognize from our theme music. There is a lengthy section of studio ambience that follows. It's possible that this is a recording of room tone, which is useful for editing into the soundtrack in place of silences, which would betray the editing process too much. This is common practice when shooting films, but I'm only speculating that this is what's happening here. In the background, after the telephone rings, someone calls out for a Wynn Jones or it could be Glyn Jones. Either way it's wrong and Glyn Johns can be heard responding for them to take a number. The tape cuts and now Paul has arrived talking to Michael Lindsay Hogg and Glyn. The topic of discussion is the omnibus television presentation of Cream's farewell concert at the Royal Albert Hall. Paul can be heard mocking the interviews conducted with the band members. Michael says he thought Ginger Baker's interview was best, but Paul thinks the questions were very poor. By way of illustration, Michael compares the program to Barry Ryan's recent hit, Eloise, calling it all form and no substance. Paul disagrees with Michael's opinion of Eloise. Glyn thinks it's a great production, but a mediocre song. So effectively, he's keeping a foot in both camps. This inspires Paul to go to the piano and give a performance of Oh Darling, which is almost complete. He laments that most of the material the Beatles have brought to the sessions has been slow. The end of this performance and the conversation that follows is in the Let It Be film. Michael asks Paul what was the song they were playing on Friday. Paul offers Maxwell's Silver Hammer and describes it as a Tom Lehrer type song, i.e. satirical. Michael asks if Paul has heard Wilson Pickett's version of Hey Jude. Paul likes it Michael spells his opinion of the song as B A L L S Y. Paul, still reviewing Friday's work, is most pleased with the one after 909. Glenn is very enthusiastic about that song, and Paul gives both he and Michael a brief history of the early writing partnership of Lennon McCartney, complete with an a cappella rendition of an early song called Just Fun. Tony Richmond is now present, and he's also called to the phone, but he's not wanting to call anyone back. Oh Darling reminds Michael of Fats Domino, and Glyn asks if Paul has heard the new album by the New Orleans singer called Fats Is Back. Paul knows of it, and the producer of the album Richard Perry. He is of interest because he will go on to produce Ringo Starr during his early solo career. Michael mentions that he and Tony travelled in the car together today and heard Buddy Holly on the radio. He wonders at the seemingly endless amount of unheard material that's been released since Holly's death and asks Paul if the Beatles have any unreleased songs. Paul doesn't seem to think so and can only name the Decor Audition and the Hollywood Bowl recordings. This may have been slightly defensive from Paul as we know now that John is considering working on the unreleased Across the Universe for these sessions. He inquires after the recording equipment that he berated Glyn and Mal about on Friday Glyn tells Paul that some of it will arrive later. It's Michael's turn to be called to the phone. Glyn asks Paul if they will be using their Fender amps for the show. Paul would rather Glyn tell them what equipment to use. This is the era of huge speaker stacks behind the musicians. Glyn, however, thinks the current setup is fine and relates the story of how Pete Townsend of The Who appeared in front of a stack of speakers at the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus recording but was only plugged into one. This leads to a discussion of The Who's barnstorming performance on the show. In particular, drummer Keith Moon's use of water on his drums to create a dramatic spray effect during their song's finale. Michael tells the tale of The Who's bad behaviour when he filmed their promotional clip for the Happy Jack single in 1966, but still says he likes them. Another reference to the crew member getting married on Saturday, and I've narrowed it down to Tony Richmond or Peter Sutton. Ringo arrives, not feeling too good. I insinuated that he's hungover. It could be just tiredness from the change of working hours. But by the way everyone laughs, I think they understand what he's alluding to. So with Paul and Ringo present, but still waiting for John and Yoko and George, let's rejoin the soundstage at Twickenham. We left the last episode at this point, so let's continue from here.
2: I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> Join
3: the club.
1: <coughs> Join the club, says
3: Cleo. But like, I was wondering... Yeah, yeah. What was it that struck me the other day? If you... Are your ears as good and pure as they were five six years ago? Or, like, we're talking about levels, we're talking to you about it... I forget, but like... If you play with that volume, like on stage for so long, do your ears get a little cloth?
1: Michael, possibly inspired by Jack Bruce's similar comments in the Cream documentary, asks Paul if loud music has affected his hearing. His term is, do your ears get a little cloth?
0: Is that the Kotlin expression? Oh, as you're yeah, supposed to. Teddy's went deaf, yeah. and Beethoven did. Yeah. yeah. Right. A, well-known, a well-known amplified musician. Well-known amplified musician.
3: <laughs>
1: There seemed to be a belief in rock circles that your ears naturally acclimatised, which is obviously now known to not be the case. Paul's view is quite flippant. He knows British band leader Ted Heath went deaf, and he jokes, Beethoven too. Glynn takes the view that science must be wrong. George Martin, as we know, lost his hearing later in life.
2: Well, scientifically, they are say, it's uh, that rumor has it yeah. that you, you do. You you know, if you, if you listen to, you know, consistently to high levels it does affect your hearing mm. but in that case I should be deaf by now because I've done it every day for 10 years at ridiculous levels, sitting right in front of me yeah. what did you
1: say? Ringo delivers the punchline what did you say? <laughs> it's a classic Ringo's comment here is your ears work like your pupils so it really was a common belief at the time
2: speakers, yeah. I, I think what in fact what I know happens is if you when you start a session after for instance in control okay. you turn the speakers up very loud and it sounds ridiculously loud. Yeah. And as the time progresses, the your your ears progress, progress, like your, pupils. your ears turn down. Yeah. In fact. So yeah. after about an hour of it, you're turning the your speakers up more because you can't hear loudly. It's really right. weird, whereas they're exactly mm. the same. Mm. Right. I think there's like a mute in your
3: that's the, and, and the only interesting thing. I Like yeah. on that cream show last night was Jack Bruce said that someone said that kind of question to him.
2: Yeah. So, the, but he said he said you're up. to switch off. Yeah, it's true. They what? do. They just and down. you're only hearing but really private do, sound. Do you, you sleep well after that. If oh after a three three. after after doing mm. one of these things, I go and I wake up in the middle of the night and there's like someone playing guitar. Like if you play cards all night, you a to be dreaming of flashes.
1: That voice again, who we assume is Tony Richmond, is saying if he hears loud music, he has trouble sleeping. Much like, if he plays cards, he dreams of flashes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, people always used to say that, you know, when you used to, you know, we used to do live shows all the time. We just, do ears, it was the year is You couldn't really hear you it. Know, I never no, noticed what no. they said. They said it's just deafening, you know, all the sound, the you amps know, and the screaming. And I said, it's and, like, uh,
2: though, you get used to it. They mm-hmm. only hear it once every yeah. six months. Yeah. And it's with you all the time, yeah. you don't know. I mean, it never sounds that loud to me. The only thing that ever gets me now is the headphones at EMI. Yeah. When they do the wrong oh, equipment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Can you
0: kill someone like that, by the way?
1: Ringo says loud music doesn't affect him except the headphones at EMI if they send a loud signal by mistake. Strange question from Paul. Not sure who he's thinking of.
2: Not like that, but there is a, there is a bass frequency which I don't think is, is capable of being got in a recording studio which does kill. Oh, but I
0: mean, couldn't you? No, but couldn't oh, you? Story. No, it's Yes, sure. But story. couldn't you put head- headphones on someone and just put play it a lot too loud through headphones? Suddenly.
1: This is like a scene from a spy movie. Sorby states that it's probably just as well that John isn't here, as he'd probably want to try. It. I
0: mean, I know I've,
3: it's nearly happened. <laughs> What, that note? <laughs> that note? I mean, that kind of tone No, note. just the, the no, track just the coming track. back. But well, they've, know. they've I left mean, it up it very loud the in the, the speakers. So
0: morning. So it just comes back. Morning. And, morning. <laughs> right in your head and you just pull them off and... Don't do that again, Ken!
1: Ken, we can presume, is Ken Townsend, their recent engineer at EMI. <laughs>
3: How are you? Hi. Good morning.
1: John and Yoko have arrived. Can't quite make out what John remarks here.
0: Come on, Marianne. Mm -hmm. Come on, Marianne.
1: By singing Come on Marianne, John is referencing a 1967 hit by the four seasons. Written by L. Russell Brown and Raymond Bloodworth, it was their last hit single of the 60s. Not sure if this little song is John geeing up Yoko, perhaps.
0: How do you feel? OK. Oh yeah, it was just a passing phase. Yeah. <coughs> or a passing lunch. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it sounds like John and Paul have spoken over the weekend and John wasn't feeling too good either. Michael plucks up the courage to bring up the elephant in the room.
3: We ought to think this week sometime about the show. We are not
0: thinking about the show. We never stop God. thinking about it. <laughs> no, no, no. <never. laughs>
1: Paul and John say they are thinking about the show. Michael sarcastically says we can do it at the Albert Hall, referencing the Cream Show from last night.
3: But we're still staying flexible. What you mean is you ought to think. <laughs> this week you ought to think, think about the show. We can, we can do it at the Albert Hall. I like camping. That's
2: quick cuts. Oh, did you see that last night? Yeah. The cream yeah. bits. Well, yeah, that's all the way. That's all the way There were just bits. Laughing, Terrible the quick cutting. The
1: cutting. <laughs> laughing, Ringo flicked between Rowan and Martin's Laughing and the Cream documentary. John and Yoko watched London Weekend Television's drama, All Things Being Equal, instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: All things being equal. Good <laughs> <Great> divorce saga.
2: <laughs>
1: As the subject is divorce and Yoko is getting divorced, she found it terribly embarrassing. <laughs> From August 1968, ITV's London network franchise holder, Thames Television, would hand over to London Weekend Television at 7pm every Friday. LWT would then be in charge of programme schedules for, as their title suggests, the rest of the weekend. Somehow the handover always felt like an event, the end of the working week and the beginning of your leisure time. Not quite the case for the station's workforce, however, former Rediffusion employees whose weekday contracts were redrawn to include weekends. Fifteen seconds into LWT's opening night on the 2nd of August 1968, technicians went on strike and the screens went blank. Such was the state of industrial relations in this most political of years. After the dispute was resolved, however, LWT still struggled in the ratings war with the BBC. Initially, its remit was to provide highbrow cultural entertainment such as a Stravinsky musical drama, an avant-garde Jean-Luc Goddard film, and last night's drama, All Things Being Equal, written by Stanley Bryson, starring Anna Massey and David Buck. The subject of divorce still being a stigma, it appears to have been uncomfortable viewing for John and Yoko. We do see another side of Yoko here, being self-effacing and funny and getting a warm response from Paul and Ringo
2: and Mars is laughing to watch that
1: cream thing oh, I right. also would have rather watched laughing paul vocalising the fast cutting style of the cream documentary
0: the cream thing was just terrible you know just all <coughs> 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 just a cut 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 and you didn't you never saw him you know and then it was the interviews and eric saying... Well, this is your trouble <laughs> this is your trouble and this is your base <laughs> could you show us then <laughs>
1: Even Ringo saw the rather embarrassing section of the interview with Eric Clapton. Tape runs out. New reel loaded just in time for George's arrival. Morning, George. Morning, all. One, Morning, George. this is roll 30 wild. There, okay. I've got a tipped He asks for a tipped ciggy, a filter-tipped cigarette to you and me. I've got a wild. Here's one of those deafening noises that Paul was talking about. We'll cut this just in case it really can kill someone. George having trouble sleeping but as we know he's having some personal problems at the moment. Someone mimicking birdsong as George talks about being up till dawn.
0: There also, come, there also
3: comes a point where it's not worth sleeping. I think.
1: George says he feels quite good despite the lack of sleep, but we'll see how he manages through the day.
0: Uh, if you know what I mean. ringy this morning. Yes, I know. I've I know. I was complaining to the operator and telling him, "Can I, can I tell you about it? my phone's gone wrong?" But it's just I haven't switched it through.
1: George tried to call Paul, but apparently Paul hasn't done something to get his phone line to work. Stars at the time often needed to change phone numbers on a regular basis, as the fans would always manage to work out how to get a hold of their idols.
3: Tony, when's another other camera going to be here? In about half oh, an no. hour. Is that the same half an hour it was 20 minutes ago? Is that a new one?
1: <laughs> Paul sings a bit of I've Got a Feeling. Michael inquires of Tony testily about a new camera needed for the filming. I <laughs> see. In the background, George remarks on the improvements and the performance area. It's slowly taking shape.
0: So, uh, you know, what's the place? <laughs> This is just us getting just in, rest in the morning. Area. Just yeah. Office party. Yeah.
1: George wondering why everyone is still sitting around.
3: We've talked about what have we done so far? We've done the Cream TV show.
2: Oh, supposed
0: to so, say, yeah. what a nice thing to do. Yeah. Not so much. Nice it's, it's, oh, it's, it's the BBC, sh- though. It was our film, the f- photographers. Yeah, it's the BBC, anything, and do you? And the it. announcement. <coughs>
1: George, too, didn't like the concert film, but liked the interviews, especially Ginger Bakers.
3: <laughs> and you can do a tap routine to it all.
0: <laughs> and all the questions in the interviews. That was, that was good. uh, The only one I liked really was Jack Bruce and And Jack Bruce's good interview. Ginger was great. (laughs) (laughs) great
1: Tony asked Glyn what he thought of the sound of the show. Glyn thought they did a great job. Not a view shared by many to be honest.
0: Is he it's like ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah, I don't just yeah,
1: doing, George is simultaneously saying to Ringo that Ginger reminds him of him. Joking, he doesn't know what it is he's doing, he just does it. Oh, he did very
0: well. I did met him. Yeah. Very well. Just at the uh, yellow submarine, so just fell off. But you'd meet each uh, other as star drummers, wouldn't you? Oh yeah, we meet right Ginger. That's
1: what I mean. Yeah. boy. <laughs> George asks if Ringo has met Ginger Baker. Apparently, they met at the Yellow Submarine premiere in 1968. John adds, You really got to know him. Paul jokes here, mimicking the tabloid that obviously, as star drummers, they must know each other. Ringo acting out a mock meeting. Hi, Ginge. Hello, boy. to <sighs> Fallback back, singing I've Got A Feeling, this time joined by John. George has something to offer, however. He's been writing over the weekend. Well, I wrote a gospel song over the weekend, lads. Mm-hmm. According
0: to Saint who? According to the Lord. Hear me, Lord. I'm <laughs> <you>. <laughs> He
1: says he's wrote a gospel song, John quips, According to Saint who? George, unamused, corrects him. According to the Lord. Then jokes, hear me Lord, I'm a calling you. After an awkward silence, Michael again tries to discuss the show.
3: Wouldn't it be nice if we did the show with a big audience? Yes. I think so. Especially compared be- to okay, it for our two-part merchandising. Yeah. If we did it as opposed to this, which will look quite intimate. I think we might forget
1: the whole idea of this show. <laughs> yeah, just that's it,
0: okay. I'll go along with that. The of go, back to... go back to square one.
1: George makes his feelings about the show idea known at this point, though he's only half joking. Go back to bed, he adds. So clearly he's just tired and doesn't want to talk about it.
3: Let's go on. I like that. I like being flexible. I think that's important. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Michael being sarcastic. George picks up his Gibson acoustic So now we know what the brown one was He was asking Mel to get (laughs) (laughs) Paul offers George his guitar this is my one if you want to use it an odd suggestion as it's left handed George demurs Paul's comment at this time of the morning is a reference to Ginger Baker's interview in the Cream documentary
0: here comes my recording studio Oh, Jesus, look at it. Oh,
3: it's beautiful. With that, with the motif. It's like an
1: ambulance. An ambulance for ailing documentaries. The Apple Corps van has arrived at the stage door with the 8-track recorder. Michael is impressed, though. He compares it to an ambulance. And, in a little telling comment, an ambulance for ailing documentaries. George running through I've Got a Feeling. Michael is rallying the crew to get some shots of the equipment being unloaded. You can see this footage in the Beatles Anthology series. Quick Les, Les. Les, the shout to Les Parrott. Tape cuts. When the tape starts again, we hear George trying to get some interest in his new composition. Hear me, Lord. Uh, uh, then left
0: it just what, thought, what is the fl- is the flute? The, fl- the, fl- right. the hell that yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And nothing at the end. Yeah.
3: Oh, beautiful voice. Yeah. His name
1: is Roger O'Neill. Roger O'Neill. In the background, Paul is discussing his production of the Urban Spaceman by the Bonzo Dog Band, which he says he did as a favour for leader Viv Stanchel. The flute was a recorder, and that thing at the end, the pipe, as Ringo puts it, a hose pipe with a trumpet mouthpiece, played and spun around the player's head to give a chorus effect. I think Michael is conflating Bonzo's Roger Ruskin spear and Neil Innes into Roger O'Neill here.
3: Really. Neil, it's beautiful. That's the best thing The Voice. So Tony said, so I've always liked the flute. Talk about the Bonzos' record. And Tony this morning said so that guy's been a great voice. Yeah, a really please lovely voice. Please. Do you see that? Uh,
2: Color me pop. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's the best thing on huh? the thought
1: The a bit. Glyn mentions the show Color Me Pop here, which the Bonzos were on. George tries to get some attention for Me Lord, but to no avail. Michael relates the story of how he was going to film the Bonzos when they supported Tiny Tim at the Albert Hall, but he found their act impossible to film. There's too much going on at once, he says. Well, you
3: know where they're terribly so, wrong, the We were gonna film when they did Albert Hall Tiny Tim because a friend of ours has to do with him, so they want a promotion for American comedy. Season. And they screwed up their acts and terrible because so what they do is with this song, they've got too much going on on stage and let us a song. It's it's everything is going on.
0: It looks like
1: uh, we know something about that. <laughs> <laughs> let you into a secret, of Anthony. Can... There's a tantalising hint at a secret from Paul there. He's saying, You know something about that, I'll let you into a secret, Anthony, which I can only presume is Les Anthony, John and Yoko's driver. And then he doesn't tell you what it is, so it's. Uh, Quite disappointing.
0: Oh. Oh. It's just a funny day oh, again. Again another one. Oh. You know, just knock knock. You know, big Who's the wagon? <laughs> Who's the big, big wagon vehicle? coming out and all yeah. these fellows who come to get the uh, what is it? Yeah. Come to body ground I've got a beautiful lot. Uh, they call it? Revox, the new Revox. It's so here we
1: find out that in fact the eight-track machine is George's, despite there being two others at Boston Place. He's complaining about the van coming to pick it up, presumably this morning. He seems to have a few tape recorders at home. George here mocking the Eric Clapton interview again.
0: Well, you see if he can get me. Great just <laughs> I thought he was great, you know, just doing. That. No, because he think was they, really the interviewer though. was sort No, but the bit I was. They were all a bit sort of uptight with the ballad, like, you know. Yeah, was you know what I mean? No, the great was bit was when they were talking. Like, oh, yeah, oh yes. it's quite yeah. We awesome. aren't the same. The great bit was when they were talking about it aggression. Good, the and the interviewer so said. Eric said, so like when I feel really want aggression, to, I you really do." on And the interviewer said, can you show us, us something? And,
3: and he, and he had to like it at 10 o'clock. And, was was and like, now, yeah, I said, you can you, can camp, you can camp, show us you might be able to show us? It's a funny interview question for
0: Aggression, so he does a very aggressive bit. Oh, yeah. It's difficult. they just talking about aggression. He said, could you do something? Aggression. Instinct aggression. Yeah.
3: It's funny.
1: Michael, too, is very critical about the interview, as Paul points out. The interviewer asked Eric to play something aggressive, completely spontaneously. George marks the response on the guitar. Um, yeah. You couldn't ever sort
0: of show all that, could you, in any... What's that? This. Yeah. Without all of this, ever, you know, like that, end, it's much better than this end oh yeah just straight looks oh, no. okay.
3: so we've also got reverses and you over here which shows that as well
1: this is a generic blues it's been identified as for you blue but I don't think that is written yet Paul likes the idea of filming the unadorned studio as well as the stage
3: if we watch to... when's the car getting here This a here. enough
1: Michael's still asking after that camera, half an hour hasn't passed yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: the
3: camera will be Are we getting
0: the thing in. from IBC then? Yeah. And uh, is Alex going to plug think all think that up? You see, the, you see the, the problem was, uh, the uh, I don't know, I suppose maybe you spoke to him, Come but... You see, you, him, the you know the, the, the amplifiers for the, wall, the microphones?
2: Pretty yeah, pretty 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 so the well, we've, yeah, it's all...
1: IBC are supplying the mixing desk to accompany the tape recorder. George is asking if the infamous Magic Alex is connecting it all. Glyn Johns' response is telling. Supposedly, he says. George is saying the mic preamps are built in. Glyn says in his board. So this is the infamous Apple Studios mixing desk they're discussing. Hence why we have to borrow equipment from IBC. Glynn has an issue also as IBC will only lend him about four preamps for a two week period. This isn't really enough equipment to get a decent recording.
0: So IBC and it, and it's like it back was back the blunt end that went in, so period. it didn't just sort of pull out. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Know, was it something graduate, uh, Who's going to look after all this equipment, you see, because the only thing is uh, yeah. yeah, no, a washing machine, it it's is shame. like 10,000. Because food, no, mean it wasn't with mother. Uh, yeah. so no, I mean, it, the, just, I just to look after yeah. it, well, and really gonna it and whoever's going to be using it and just so that, you know.
1: Yeah, Will well, he do you know, that you know, just to right nick sure his? But it's too time. dicey just to sort of nick your face. It'll be good to I get it going and all that. You need
0: someone who's done Just so that. I'll do it, man. I'll do it. I'll do it, man. No. There's always some.
1: We get an idea of how much the A track recorder has cost the Beatles and why they were reluctant to use it. Glyn reassures George. He'll have a maintenance guy looking after it full time. The other conversation you can hear is between Paul, Ringo and Michael. Paul is saying something about pushing in a drawing pin and cutting his thumb. And then he goes on to talk about the film which he thinks is The Graduate where somebody cuts their thumb. Or is it their face, says Michael. Either way, it's not The Graduate. Yes, because they they
3: put a little blood capsule on and make it happen
0: And the AMR is is coming as well now. Is it? Yeah. But there are guys, well, I mean I'm sure you could get it done in special before. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen them? The oh, oh they didn't bring they're not bringing in their eight. I, uh, no. EMI. Have you seen the ball? Not yet. I saw it's a bit of stuff. So that's great, Friday afternoon. I don't know what's coming.
2: It's the
0: bit they keep showing.
1: EMI are also supplying equipment. Paul interjects about the 8-track again. Wary of another telling off, Glynn says he doesn't know. But it sounds like mixing consoles eventually used for the Apple Studio will be present from this week.
0: That's the one that's good That's right, right. the good we We've got an more track we might have a yeah, bouncy yeah. bit. We'll have, we have two mixing sets of mixing gear. He's one of the movie stars. That's all we need. Great, yeah. All I want
2: there is a control room. He
3: doesn't do too much. I mean, there is a great style of non-acting. I mean, like Michael Caine doesn't do anything. Why not? And that's very so it really
2: depends, good, if you yeah. have an audience, where they're going to be. Yeah,
0: on the
3: floor
2: here, yeah, yeah. say. Will they be raised or or yeah. what? No. You know? no. And also, if we build one, yeah. it would have to be quite I mean, obviously, a soundproof structure.
0: Yeah. The only other alternative
2: uh, would be to put me in one of the dressing rooms. I won't be able to see anything. I really yeah. would like to see. It's Sure, I, I think TV. you should. Uh... TV.
0: Oh, okay. see you all right.
1: Glynn says all he wants now is a control room. Paul suggests he build it in the studio. Glynn says he needs to know what the setup should be first.
0: Yeah, that's it. Monitors. It's never as it's never quite yeah, as good. Yeah. Though. I mean, you'd like to, it's nice it's to like, be there and be able to lean up as Alex and see who's is, about to sing. his waves, right? Sound waves. I don't know. Have you seen? Has anyone seen? Oh, are they work? Well, is he going I always no, don't like talking it. about it and sort of about Alex and his magic waves.
1: Ringo inquires after Alex's sound waves. A pie-in-the-sky concept of a sonic screen to isolate sounds in the studio without the need for physical baffles. Clint is intrigued. Paul says something interesting. I always don't like talking about Alex and his magic waves. I haven't seen any. Was Paul sceptical? In 1962, the American retailer hammaker Schlemmer, based in Niles, Illinois, listed an unusual item in its gift catalogue. The Nothing Box. This box does something, it blinks, and that's all. Try it on your desk. You'll find people thinking you've got a compact computer, a spice stick. Signals from one of your conflict of interest firms. Let us warn you that unless you use an axe, you can't turn it off. It will keep winking its eight eyes in no recognizable pattern and for no apparent reason for nearly a year. Then it's dead as a mackerel and you can't get it fixed. If you get sore at it, turn it to the wall. The Nothing Box, complete with an amusing piece of copy, $25. The ultimate rich person's pointless purchase. One was said to be in the possession of former president Dwight Eisenhower and at the end of the Beatles summer tour of 1965, John Lennon first laid eyes on one. He was so enamoured of the device, actually now rechristened the Something Box due to a copyright issue, that he returned to the UK with a number of them in his luggage. In his infamous Bigger Than Jesus interview with Maureen Cleave, she wrote in the sitting room are eight little green boxes with winking red lights. He bought them as Christmas presents but never got around to giving them away. John was also photographed by Brian Duffy around this time with one of the boxes in photographs which one publication captioned John Lennon with UFO detector London 1965. Read any number of Beatles biographies. Philip Norman's shout springs to mind, or do a quick Google search on the Nothing Box and you'll find the pointless gadget associated with the notorious character in the Beatles story, Greek inventor Yannis Alexis Mardas or Magic Alex. It is not known how the Nothing Box became part of the story of John Lennon meeting Alexis. It's possible that the story is conflated with another tale connected directly to another band, the Rolling Stones. But let's rewind a little to 1965 and the arrival in the UK of a 23-year-old Yanis Mardis on a student visa. Biographical information on Mardis is quite scarce, and what there is is often inaccurate, so this is my best guess at unravelling the enigmatic tale. For help with this, I give full credit to arrivewithouttravelling.com Yanis, as he was known at the time, found employment in London as a TV repairman. It's not exactly known how, but he began a friendship with John Dunbar, husband to Marion Faithful, and co-owner of the Indica Books and Gallery. Their relationship was close enough for Yannis to move into Dunbar's flat in Benting Street a few yards from the EMI offices in Manchester Square. Yannis, now going by his middle name of Alexis, charmed Dunbar into allowing him to present his own exhibition of kinetic light sculptures at the Indica. Attending the show was John Lennon. Alex chatted to John and impressed him with his plans for various electronic gadgets that enthralled the technically naive Lennon. It's reasonable to presume that Lennon's earlier purchase of the Nothing Box had piqued his interest in electronic toys and Alexis appeared to be a new source for such entertainment. John was smitten with Alex's energy, charm and vision and was soon introducing him to the other Beatles and their inner circle as My New Guru. Alex. In 1967, Mardis and Dunbar were commissioned by Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones to create a psychedelic light box for their upcoming European tour. It is probably this piece of equipment that has become confused with the nothing box in some writers minds. Ultimately, in a soon to be all too familiar pattern of events, the Stones were not impressed with Alex's light box and didn't use it. Many of Magic Alex's ideas have become the stuff of myth and legend. In 2010 Maldus went on record to refute some of the claims made against him. Specifically, he denied ever having promised or even discussed, let alone try to invent the following gadgets. An X-ray camera which could see through walls. A force field which could surround a building with coloured air so that no one could see it. A force field of compressed air which could stop anyone driving into one's car. A house that could hover in the air suspended on an invisible beam. Wallpaper that could plug into a stereo system and operate as a loudspeaker. An artificial sun which was intended to hover over Baker Street and light up the sky during the gala opening of the Apple Boutique. Magic paint that could make things invisible. Electrical paint, which could be plugged into a wall and light up a room. A flying saucer made of V12 engines from George Harrison's Ferrari and John Lennon's Rolls-Royce. And finally, a force field around Ringo Starr's drums that would isolate the drum sounds from the rest of the microphones in the studio. And yet, on this audio recording of January 6, 1969, we can hear Ringo and Paul discussing precisely this promised invention. If Mardus didn't suggest it, then who? In his defense, Mardas stated that he once had a discussion with John Lennon about this topic. Mardas said that it was possible, theoretically, to create an ultrasonic barrier generated by ultrasonic transfusers, whatever they are. This would prevent sound traveling over a certain field. However, he never claimed he could make such a barrier. In Stephen Maltz's book, The Beatles, Apple and Me, the former Beatle accountant resists painting Maldus as any kind of villain or con man. In Maltz's opinion, Alex merely had an inability to say no to the relentless requests for new innovations from his employers. As with most things connected to Alex, things always took longer than planned or did not come to fruition. Alex was making studies for a number of recording studio projects. Apart from The Beatles and The Rolling Stones, he had been approached by a company in Germany, as well as somebody in Brighton who wanted a small home studio. He was also asked by George to design the electrical work for his home. I believe that Alex was an original thinker who was ahead of his time. His problem, as far as I was concerned, was that he wanted to please everyone all the time. In the atmosphere of Apple, he was unable to function properly and got caught up in too many personal and business conflicts, especially with regards to Cynthia, John and Yoko. We'll discuss the infamous Apple Studio and its inventor a little more later in the series.
2: That would be good, I you in the middle there. Yeah, <laughs>
0: of silence, mm-hmm. those soundproof walls of mm-hmm. silence mm-hmm. are ringing
1: sings along to George now on electric improvising and lyric those soundproof walls of silence the Beatles head to the rehearsal area and we'll leave it there On the Winter of Discontent Facebook page, Brian Hassett has posted a link to his website, unsurprisingly titled BrianHassett.com. This is following on from Episode 17's feature on the play The Beard by Michael McClure. The research for his article, The Beatles, The Beat and The Beard, is Peerless, And I'm very pleased to say the painstaking research lining George's Whereabouts with the various performances of the play concurs with my own hunch about George seeing the London production by Rip Torn in late 1968. I'm really grateful for the link and I'd like to openly encourage anyone who has done their own research into the get back period to share their links on the Facebook page. I think between us, we can create a new definitive body of work on the subject. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.